the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord say, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. God, words fail. When we think about your greatness, your power, your goodness, your holiness, and you choose to place that coal on our lips and cleanse us and allow us to worship you. God, we are so grateful. So grateful. Fill us with your presence. May we honor you in all that we do, all that we say. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We could close up shop right now, couldn't we? Good stuff. Really. If you're here for the first time, a special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here and trust that God will speak in some cool ways today. We start a new series today. It's a series called Really God that um, involves uh, taking a look at God's take on what's going on in the world around us. Um, it's a four-week series. Today really kind of lays the foundation. But before we jump into the series, let me, let me say this. In this series, we're going to talk about what's going on in our current culture. We're going to look at that, hopefully, from God's perspective and, um, and, and look at our own lives. Um, because we're talking about stuff that's going on in the culture around us, um, this series might be a great time if you've got little guys to explore kids' world and um, have them there, or to have some conversations that uh, that maybe you've, you're not prepared to have. I don't know. Who knows? Um, on the flip side of that, Chris and I were just talking a little bit ago, and um, and the flip side of that, maybe if you've got some teenagers, it may be good for them to to process that. This, this series of messages as well, either by, by listening online, downloading them, and, uh, and listening to them a little bit later, or to being up here uh, for the next three weeks. Um, it is, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting world and an interesting time that we live in, wouldn't you say? Uh, in the words of the great theologian Ozzy Osbourne, it feels like we're on a crazy train, right? All the 
a crazy world, right? Wow. What do we do with what's going on in the world around us? Bruce Jenner, the winner of the decathlon in 1976, the most demanding event of the Summer Olympics. Bruce Jenner says he identifies as a woman, undergoes hormone therapy, takes on the name Caitlin and appears on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine. Even though he still has boy parts, even though he's still married to his wife, and the media embraces and celebrates him for following his heart, right? Rachel Dolezal, a white woman in Spokane, Washington, identifies as a black woman even though she's not black genetically. And she's elected president of the local NAACP chapter. And she's scourged by the media. In humiliation, she resigns her presidency for following her heart. The Supreme Court makes a historic ruling that creates arguments between friends and makes Facebook like a Sherwin-Williams paint store has exploded. In Oregon, a 15-year-old is not allowed to have alcohol, to smoke cigarettes, to get a tattoo, or to drive a car. But we found out this week that they're allowed by law to undergo a sex reassignment surgery without the knowledge or consent of their parents. We live in a crazy world. Part of what makes it so crazy is that here in the U.S., historically, we've had this sense of clarity culturally on what was acceptable morally. There's a generation older than me that can remember when every day in public school began with the Pledge of Allegiance and prayer. When divorce and having a baby outside of marriage was shameful. When a sense of duty and sacrifice were expected of every member of society. There was a universal understanding of what's right and wrong. What was black or white. That's not the world that we live in anymore. Fifty Shades of Grey is more than just the title of a book or a movie. So how do you make sense of the world that we live in? How do you respond as culture changes? How do you decide what's right or wrong? How do you decide what's funny? What's entertaining? What's acceptable? And what's reprehensible? My hope is that today's message lays a foundation for answering those questions. And that the next three messages, the messages the next three weeks, will provide some very direct application. Um, we're going to talk the next three weeks, next week, about same-sex attraction. The following week, we're going to talk about what it looks like for us in a world where Islam is growing. And, um, and, and there's just a whole bunch of pieces that have implications for us as followers of Jesus. The third week, we're going to talk about sexology, about the theology of sex. Please, please pray for me that I will choose, choose words with wisdom 
that the Holy Spirit will connect dots in your life and that as a result, God will transform us into the people that he created us to be. So all the stuff that we're going to talk about, all the stuff that's going on around us, people have opinions on, right? How do you decide what's right or wrong? What are our options? I don't have this on screen. If you want to take some notes, um, there are a couple of places in here in this message that I think would be really good. This is the first one of those. There are four options for us that can help us determine what's right or wrong. Um, uh, in our lives personally and in the culture that we live in. The first option is me, what I think. How do we determine what's right or wrong? It's based on what I feel, right? Oh, I like that. I don't like that. I feel good about that. Oh, I don't feel good about that. And, and I become the filter for what's right or wrong. It's not just in our feelings, though. That me piece is about our intellect, too. We say, oh, that argument makes sense. That logic I can follow. That logic's bad logic. That logic doesn't make sense to me. And so we become the filter that determines what, what's right or wrong, and it's centered completely in us. That's me, right? A second option is the word we. It's what's acceptable for us culturally. What does everybody else around us think? And that, if everybody else is thinking something, shouldn't I think that too? Shouldn't that determine what's right or wrong? There's this sense of we as an option for us. There's a third word. It's the word they. It's some authority outside of ourselves and a little bit outside of our culture. Um, the, there are uh, one option in the they world is the media. Well, the media is communicating this to everybody. So that must be right or wrong. That's a they. The legal system is a they too. Well, the courts say that it's right or say that it's wrong. So it has to be right or wrong. That's, that, that's their job, isn't it? To define morality for us. And it's they. There's, there's another one that, that you may not expect, and it's the church, right? We say, oh, it has to be right or wrong because the church says that it's right or wrong. The preacher says that it's right or wrong. The pope says that it's right or wrong. That's a, that's a they answer. Ultimately, there's another pronoun that I, that, um, that's there as well, and that's the word he. How do, we, how do we know what's right or wrong? We go to God, and God determines for us what's right or wrong. The, the, the thing is, in any of those four areas, there are some serious difficulties, aren't there? If you go back to what, how do we tell right from wrong? Well, it's based on what I want. What's the problem with that? I changed my mind, right? Don't you too? It's, oh, I thought that was, no, I, oh, I don't know. That makes sense. That doesn't, I, I don't know. We change our mind. What's the problem with the they, when we talk about culture, defining what's right or wrong, culture changes too, right? Because it's about um, majority rules. If 51% say something's right, it has to be right. The problem is that that 51% can shift. We've experienced that in the last year dramatically, right? The majority or even not, sometimes not even majority, the plurality has shifted. And so all of a sudden something that we thought was wrong is right goes back and forth. What's the problem with the they, with the Supreme Court? 
with the legal system, with the church, with the media, they change their mind too. There are things in history that the church has said, oh, that's, that's right or that's wrong, that they've changed their mind on. There's things that the, that the court has flip-flopped and waffled on. Um, they, they change. What's the problem with the he? If we say, oh, yeah, God determines what's right or wrong, what's the, what's the issue with that? It's that it's hard for us to conform our will to God's, right? If we say that God determines what's right or wrong, it gets really difficult for us to embrace that and to live that out on a daily basis. Lots of options. And, and the crazy thing is, they don't hardly ever all four line up in the same way. You know, the courts don't agree with the media. Media doesn't agree, agree with what I feel. Uh, what I feel doesn't agree with what God says. And so we live in this world that it's, that it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to determine what's right or wrong. I want to illustrate that for you, uh, hopefully in a little bit of fun. I need two volunteers to come up on stage. That was great. Whoever was in the back row that just threw their arm down, took it away from his, his wife, put it down. Um, first service, it was easy because all of the high school kids that sit down here first service, oh, yeah, we'll do it, we'll do it. Darcy, come on up. Good. Give it up. Oh, we'll introduce her in a second. Need one? Oh, good. Amy. Good, good, good. Great. Two volunteers. Who are you? Darcy Schultz. Darcy Schultz. First service, I ask how old you were, but I won't do that. Um, Amy Beltran. Amy Beltran. Welcome them. Give it up for them. I'm going to ask you guys a couple of questions. Why don't you guys step forward a little bit? Come forward. I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and, and here are the rules. You can't choose the same answer, okay? You have to choose different answers. And then you have to explain your answer in like two sentences or less and try and convince everyone why your answer is the right one. Okay, and and again, these are pressing social issues. All right. Which is larger in surface area, Lake Michigan or Lake Huron? Those those are the two closest to Michigan that are the east and west. They're up there. Michigan's on the left. Yeah, I got that. Huron's on the right. (laughs) Lake Huron. Lake Huron. And why do you think Lake Huron? Because there's more of it. I love that logic. That's that's the way we make decisions sometimes, right? So, Amy, you choose Lake Michigan. Yeah, I do. You do. How come? (laughs) You did ahead of time, didn't you? Yeah, I did. How come? Because I think that it's bigger and deeper. I think it's deeper. It, uh, this is about surfaces. Oh, surface area. Surface area, not volume. All right. Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan. And why? Because I think that it's bigger. Good. Because I think that it's bigger. All right. No, no, no. I know that it's bigger. Oh, she knows. <laughs> no, the think works good. How many of you agree with Amy, Lake Michigan? Oh, yeah. Be loud. Be loud. Be loud and proud. Raise your hands again. That looks like about 30%. How many of you agree with Darcy and think it's Lake Superior? Raise your hands again. That's about 
35% and then a whole bunch of you didn't answer, right? Here's the answer. The answer is Lake Huron. 23,000 square miles versus 22,300 square miles. Yeah. Sometimes we, sometimes we determine right from... Now, the thing that I didn't see that I expected, I expected somebody in the audience to pull out their phone and be Googling it to, to, to find out what the answer was, to go to a source that you could trust. Sometimes we determine what's right or wrong by who has the loudest voice. Darcy, good job with the loudest voice. Here's the second question. Here's the second question. What is Ohio State football coach's uh, Urban Meyer's full name? We're going to come back to that comment in just a second. What is Urban Meyer's full name? Is it Urban Frank Meyer? Urban Legend Meyer? John Urban Meyer? Suburban Meyer? Urban Samuel Meyer. Amy, we'll let you go first. What was that? Oscar Meyer. Os- Os- no, it's not Oscar Meyer. I'm going to say C. Amy says C. John Urban Meyer. Darcy. It is E. Urban Samuel Meyer because he was named Samuel after his grandfather on his maternal side. <laughs> There's the voice of authority, right? How many of you agree with Darcy? Woo! (laughs) Convincing argument, no support. How many of you agree with Amy? How many of you think it's letter A? How many of you think letter B? How many think letter D? How many of you are, ah, there you go. Give it up for these guys. Thank you. Because the answer is letter A, Urban Frank Meyer. Neither one was right. Good. It was a valiant effort, a valiant effort. So who was it down there? Was that you, Jen? It's Crystal. It was Jason. Jason said, who cares? Right. The other Jason agrees. Well, um, you know, here's the thing. Who cares in the state of Michigan what Urban Meyer's middle name is, right? But, but, what if the person asking the question cares? There are a lot of things, moral issues, right and wrong, black and white issues that we say, Eh, who really cares? Who really cares what the answer to that is? If everybody just goes their own way, does their own thing, who cares? But the question is, what if it matters to God? What if it matters to the one we trust our lives to? Today's message is targeted for people who are serious about following Jesus. Serious about being his disciples. Serious about allowing him to be the Lord of your life. If you're not there, understand that the content of this message may not make a lot of sense to you. It may even be offensive to you. If so, I'm still glad that you're here. This is a safe place to listen. A safe place to explore the claims of Jesus 
a safe place to ask questions. But you have to understand that fully devoted followers of Jesus believe that there are answers to questions about what's right and wrong. They don't come from me. Those answers don't come from me. They don't come from anyone else speaking from the platform on Sundays. They don't come from a commentary. They don't come from public opinion. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They don't come from the media. They come from Scripture, from God's Word. Understand that in this series of messages, I'm not trying to sway public opinion. I'm not trying to make a case for public policy. I'm making a case that what Scripture says is sin is sin. The issue for us as followers of Jesus is not about what the United States law says. And it's not about what public opinion says. It's about what does Scripture say about our behavior. That's true whether we're talking about sexual sin, about relational sin, about serving other gods as we did a couple of weeks ago. The core issue is whether or not we're willing to accept God's word as true and authoritative about behavior in every aspect of our lives. Recognizing that those principles, those precepts, those laws that God has given us, he gave to us for our protection and for our provision. God's laws, God's direction from Scripture will put us at odds with the culture that doesn't accept the authority of God. If the culture says that we should tolerate anything and everything, that's okay. Culture or government or media can say that. But our moral compass is not determined by public opinion or by our personal desires. It's determined, it has to be determined, by what God's Word says. Culture will always be in opposition to what God says because our desires are not God's desires. Our ways are not His ways. Part of what makes that so very complicated for us in the United States is that we've allowed ourselves to believe that the United States and the kingdom of God are one and the same. That the government is an instrument of the church and the church somehow is an arm of the government. And that simply is not true. God's word stands by itself as our authority for life. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's going to be on screen. I encourage you to pull out a Bible, uh, pull out your smartphone and go there. We're going to look at several scriptures this morning. Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter in the third chapter. He said this, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, all of the Bible, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is given so that we can know right from wrong, so that we can know who God is. And God says anything that's not acceptable to him is sin. In the New Testament, the word sin describes a picture of missing the mark. It's an archer that takes the bow and arrow and fires the arrow and misses the target completely. He shoots off course. So when we talk about sin, we're talking about missing the mark that God has set for us. What's what's sin look like in our lives? Forget for a second, if you will, all of the cultural issues that are out there. Forget the guy that you know that's cheating on his wife. Forget the woman that's embezzling money at work. Forget your friend who lies, the friend who gossips, the person that you know that always is stirring up trouble. Forget that obnoxiously proud guy who believes that he's incapable of making a mistake. What does sin look like in your life? What's sin look like in my life? It starts with this idea, this concept, this desire that's inside us, that's somewhere in our heart. It's a thought that we know what's best or we deserve something better. It's an idea that what we have is somehow just not enough. Sometimes we feed that thought all by ourselves. We just... Go to that thought and just keep coming back to it. We dwell on it. We play out the scenario in our minds. You know, our boss does something at work and we think, what would it be like? What would it be like for me to really tell off my boss? To tell him where to get up? What what would that feel like? Walk down the street and see a woman and think, boy, she's hot. I wonder, we think, if I had just married someone different, I wouldn't have to deal with all this stuff in my life. And that thought grows inside us. We become more and more comfortable with it until it just feels right. It feels like an old comfortable shoe that we can slip into. It begins to make sense to us. Any guilt, any shame is rationalized away. And we wait for the opportunity to take action on that desire. James, the book of James, chapter 1, go there. It describes what I've just said this way. James 1, verse 13 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The picture that James uses is a picture of life, of the gift of life. There's an idea that matches up with desire inside us. And when that desire is fed and finds an opportune place or time, conception takes place and that desire becomes action or sin. That sin grows in us just like a newborn. It gets fed and grows. And when it's fully grown, when it reaches maturity, it brings forth death. 
spiritual death that separates us from God. That picture makes sense to us, but the problem with it is that we want to just deal with the sin, with the end result, when it's fully accomplished. We don't want to have the affair, but we want to hold on to our aggravation or bitterness or anger or inability to forgive our spouse for something that happened long ago in the past. We don't want the affair, but we want to cultivate that lustful spirit. We don't want to be morbidly obese, but we do want that second or third piece of pie. We don't want to be greedy, but we do want just a little bit more money, a little bit bigger house, a little bit better car. We don't want to be a bitter, self-centered old man, but we do want to get things done our way in our time. We don't want the result, but we want to hold on to the desire. You can't have it both ways. You can't live in both worlds. Paul echoes that thought in his letter to the Romans when he says, the wages of sin is death. But then he gives some hope and says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If, if that's true, if our desire in us leads to sin, and our sin, if it's not dealt with, leads to death, what do we do? The, the answer is pretty simple. We have to put to death our sinful desires. We've got to deal with them deep inside us. Paul wrote to the church in, in Colossia, uh, in Colossians chapter 3, he wrote this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. How do we deal with those sinful desires? How do, how do, we, how do we get rid of them from our lives? Let me, let me give you five things, and th- th- these are the other things that I'd say write down and just kind of as takeaways. How do you deal with the desire for sin that exists in us on a daily basis? The first is this. It's to recognize that that di- desire is sin. To recognize that that desire is sin. And that's hard for us because we want, to, we want to not accept it as sin so that we can continue to play with it, right? So that we can continue to feed it. Recognize that those desires in us are sin. And then confess them at sin. Confess them to another person, not just to God. Confess them to God, but confess them to another person. First John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins to one another, God is faithful and he'll forgive us of those sins. We need to, we need, when, when we're tempted, we need to share that with someone and, and, and confess that to them. We need to have, a third thing, we need to have somebody that we're accountable to. Somebody that we cannot just go to and tell them when we're struggling, but that someone that has permission to step into our life and say, how are you doing on this? How is it going with that desire that you're struggling with day in and day out? We need to fill our minds with Scripture. 
If Scripture is what helps us understand and identify what God says is right and wrong, the only way that we can know that, the only way that we can know that is to fill our minds, our hearts with God's Word. It's crazy to walk day after day after day and never hear God's Word if we want direction on how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And the fifth thing is to pray, to just ask God to, to give you discerning eyes, to give you the mind to recognize what's at stake in the, in the, in the um, issues that are going on inside us. We need to recognize that the sinful desires have at its root the Genesis 3, the Genesis 3 account of when the serpent came to Eve. And the serpent said, did God really say you can't eat from all the trees? Satan uses that same tool with us over and over again. Did God really say, do we believe, do we really believe that God is our creator and God is the judge and God is the one who determines what's best for us? Or do we believe that what we feel determines what's best for us. At its core, this issue is who is on the throne of our lives. Are my feelings, my desires on the throne, or is God on the throne? Is God's truth on the throne of our lives? When a person, you or I, choose to follow Jesus, does him becoming Lord cover every aspect of our lives? Several years ago, I was having a conversation with a coworker about how we defined a disciple of Jesus. What's it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? He had had conversations with a number of people, and, and just in passing, in one of the conversations, a person had said, oh, uh, a, a disciple is somebody who stopped negotiating with Jesus. A disciple is someone who has stopped negotiating with Jesus. They've quit trying to rationalize their behavior. They've quit trying to justify their actions. They've begun to say yes to Jesus whenever and wherever he speaks because they know and understand that he loves them more than even they love themselves. Over the 4th of July, I was having a conversation with my nephew. We were talking about this particular message. And he said, I don't think most people in the church really believe the concept that Paul communicated in 1 Corinthians 6 when he said, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. 619, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, with whom you, uh, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. I, I think that he was right. We have been so colored by our cultural individualism that we believe that we have both the right and the responsibility to determine what's right and wrong for us. We believe that we make the call. And the enemy suckers us into believing that isn't just a good thing, it's the responsible thing. We determine our destiny. And he does it by saying, did God really say... God really say that that's wrong? Did God really say you shouldn't do that? Did God really say you shouldn't have that desire, that relationship, that thought, that action? 
Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said that we're to take captive every thought to obey Christ. There's, there's one last thought that I just want to kind of throw in. This is um, it's a foundation for the next three weeks, and it's important. Um, you can just kind of write this in the margin of any notes that you write or in the margin of your mind somewhere, okay? It's, it's this thought that I think is important to this whole deal, uh, this whole question about how we deal with cultural stuff. Our circumstances, our experience can never determine our theology, Our circumstances and our experience can never determine our theology. I remember when I first heard that truth communicated to me a number of years ago. It was in the context of a church that had had a a really strong policy that that, uh, this one guy in particular just had said, you know, an elder in the church, and, and there's no way an elder can ever be divorced because of what Scripture says in terms of the qualifications. Really, really strong served as an elder in the church until he went through a divorce. And then all of a sudden, he said, you know, I've been studying scripture and I think it's different. Our circumstances, our experience can never determine our theology. Our circumstances, our experience can never determine what's right and wrong. Only God's word can We do live in a crazy world, a world that's constantly changing. But get this, even though we live here, this world is not our home if we're followers of Jesus. We live by different rules. Scripture tells us we're strangers and aliens here on earth. Scripture, not culture, not courts, not us determine what's right or wrong. Sin starts with a desire in us. And we've got to deal with that sin in us first. God wants to provide for us. He wants to protect us. And he's laid out clear, clearly for us what it looks like to live in that kind of a relationship. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And that price was high. But the price has been paid. The price was paid by Jesus. The wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Jesus came to forgive. He came to cleanse. He came to empower us to live in, the, in relationship with the God of the universe. His rules are not a burden. They're the keys to freedom, the keys to peace. The world is a crazy place where everything's changing. The key is to choose to live a life led by the God of the universe, the God of all times, who never changes. You make the call. Let's pray. God, I feel like I feel like maybe it's best to just be quiet in your presence. And to let your spirit guide us, guide our thoughts. Lord, as we've thought about this series, it's felt like there was a a desire to have it be about them 
about those people out there, about stuff that's going on. God, may we see today that it's about us. It's about our hearts. How we deal with sin. How we listen to you. God, we invite you. We ask you. We plead with you to fill us with your spirit and convict us of sin. To help us see the the stupidity of trying to determine right from wrong in our own power. God, do your work in us that we might live in relationship with you unhindered. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing.